Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the position of the society. Speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. Have you joined AMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining. Um, we at the Florida Medical Directors Association, we really wanted to get in front and address um, all things concerning the boosters. And to do that, we've asked Dr. Gar, Swati Gar, to come on back and join us again so that she could give us um, the 411 on all things boosters. I think we all are aware of the situation we're in, and we do know the uphill challenge that we have in our long-term, um, post-acute and long-term care facilities. So with that, Swati, you could take it away. Thank you, and I appreciate it. I am going to talk fast because information is coming at us fast. Um, and um, so I'll just begin. I have no financial disclosures and the objectives were actually put together by Diane. And thank you so much for doing that. So propose. Um, so we were we are going to discuss the current guidance and the research that is behind the guidance um, or the, you know where we are finding ourselves regarding the third shot or the booster. Um, unpack the ethical considerations associated with the boosters. I'm sure everyone has heard about, well, WHO thinks that, you know, this is not important, yet some of the people are thinking that it is. And why, um, you know, how to sort that out. Um, uh, identify how we in post-acute long-term care communities should be approaching boosters for residents and our geriatric patients. So, I just, um, you know, I should have actually given this to Ian because I don't know how to work this, but just, you know, you can probably type it in the chat or whatever, but I just wanted to know what is the vaccination percentage in your community. Um, and I'm not going to spend too long, but I would love to know that answer. And I just um, wanted to say that this is this is an important consideration. And that's why we need to be super aware of this number. I did want to talk about this very briefly about this MMWR article. Um, this was published in August of 20, uh, you know, August 24th. What we are seeing here is the following. Um, the, when you see the number of um, people who are, number of cases that are occurring in, um, in, in the country, they are primarily unvaccinated people similar to the number of hospitalizations that are happening. Hospitalizations is even more compelling if you look at it. I'm gonna minimize my, yes. Um, if you look at it, the, the hospitalizations are even lower for fully vaccinated people. Um, so we need to understand this figure very, very clearly. We are, this is the backdrop on which we are going to be talking. So this is the other question that I have. What is the rate of vaccination of your staff? And please, please put that in. As well. So the first question was your community prevalence, this community vaccination rates. The second question is your staff vaccination rates. And I'm extremely jealous, uh, to be honest, of people who are putting like 95% rates of staff vaccination. Um, but hopefully we all get there. 
why is this important? I really wanted, you know, this has been a very, very important slide for us to understand what is happening. What is the big, one of the biggest drivers of what is going to happen in your nursing home? And I can share, while I'm sharing this slide, I can share the story of our nursing home. At the end of December of last year, our nursing home had run out of beds um, in the COVID unit. Um, we had approximately 28 beds in the COVID unit. We ran out of them. We had to convert one regular floor in addition to that to a COVID unit. We had about 46 residents at the end of, uh, by mid-December and December. Um, we did our vaccination, um, you know, um, starting of our vaccination, um, mass vaccination to our residents um, uh, last week of December. And then, of course, in January. Um, since then, uh, we have we recognized that, you know, and I'll go over the data that it is so incredibly important for staff to be vaccinated. And I'll go over the data in a second, but what this slide, show, this slide shows is the real world reduction in cases if your staff is vaccinated at a certain level. And that's why it's so, so important for us to keep those two numbers. One is your community rates and one is your staff rates. Um, always in the front of your in the on the top of your dashboard um, as you can see the vaccination rates of your staff once you get to that you know 70 uh, you know 75 percent rate you're sitting pretty even in very high community prevalence rates so for example since the beginning of january we have had one case of um, covid19 in a resident that case was a new admission who was unvaccinated from the hospital. Um, aside from that, we have had zero cases. Our staff percentages of vaccination had reached 60% um, in, I want to say about four months ago, four months ago. Um, our community prevalence, our community percentage positivity is flirting with 25% right now. And that is, I am, I am always anticipating a positive case, but I have not had it since. So this slide kind of tells us was the guiding document why we did what we did is boost up our staff, not boost up go up on the staff vaccination rate that was our holy grail that's what we worked on the reason was this this is a um, um, study from canada which in which they basically took neutralizing antibody which is this last one and what it shows us the control was your staff the nursing home residents were your nursing home residents and after they were vaccinated if you see the levels of neutralizing antibody titer, which were much higher in the staff and much lower in nursing home residents, which basically tell us that while the nursing home residents are making those antibodies and look at the number of antibody titers that are kind of here, you know, very, very low. Um, while they're making the antibody titers after two doses of vaccine, they are never reaching this this level of staff. Um, so your staff is your level of protection. It's like a wall around a wall of protection around your nursing home residents, and that's why we really wanted to make sure that we are vaccinating our staff now talking about what happened to the immunity that everyone developed. And this is a slide from the ACIP meeting um, that was held on August 13th. And what it shows is the effectiveness of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines against alpha variant versus Delta variant. And what we see here is, um, so, you know, in that meeting, it was discussed that United States is um, more like 
Qatars um, because they use the Pfizer, they use the Moderna, but as you see, the Pfizer vaccine, even in Israel, um, and that data is that data is coming, uh, you know, the booster data also, Israel is a little bit ahead of us, but they use primarily Pfizer vaccine. Qatar used both Pfizer and Moderna. And what we are seeing is against symptomatic infection, the immunity of Pfizer vaccine against symptomatic infection um, has um, has de has been shown to be lower now, um, you know, six to eight months after. Um, but the immunity on hospitalization and death in general population remains high, as opposed to Moderna, where the immunity against both symptomatic disease and the you know death and hospitalization continues to remain high. Um, this is important. The difference in Canada and England was attributed to the, the difference between administration of vaccines. So one of them decided to do a 12-week interval instead of a three-week interval, and one of them decided to have a 16-week interval, and some of that is attributed to the interval difference. All right. Well, so we talked about the Canada study at two slides back, and this is what happened in six months to the same. And what happened to, um, to them is basically, if you look at, if you just look at this top table, only 2% of controls, which were the staff members in those nursing homes, at two week po uh, post vaccination, did not have detectable antibody levels. I just want to make sure that there are so many negatives in this statement. Only 2% did not have detectable antibody levels among controls. However, compare that to the residents, 16% of residents did not develop after two weeks of vaccination um, that detectable antibody. And that is that is the reason why we say that our residents continue to be vulnerable despite getting vaccinated. So in nursing homes where we have much higher rates of vaccination and the residents tend to do poorly if the staff vaccination rates are lower. Compare that to what happened six months later. 70% of the nursing home residents who were, you know, compared to 16% six months back, 70% did not have detectable levels of antibodies, um, which is pretty significant and remarkable. Um, as opposed to the staff members also showed waning immunity where they went from 2% to 16% of, um, you know, of undetectable antibody levels. So this is the data from Israel, and this is the real world data that they talked about. And you could see that the rates, the actual rates, um, and these are, these are basically out from the vaccine periods. Um, so people who got, you know, for example, 60 plus, let's just look at 60 plus. People who got vaccines in January, between um, 16th of January to 31st of January, had much higher rates of real-world cases um, that you could see. And that is what the Israeli study basically showed us. And as you can see, the less duration between the second dose of vaccine, um, the, the lower the rates are. Um, this is the, this is the death, um, uh, death rates, I believe, or yes. Um, so this is what we see in the Israeli data that was presented to the FDA. And then they go, went ahead and they gave the boosters. And this is the work pack meeting that was, that was um, held last Friday. And the data was looked at from the boosters and that data is actually now available, um, I, I believe in any jam. Uh, but what they are showing is after 12 days of booster administration for 
ages 60 plus, there is a 11.3 fold lower um, relative relative risk is 11 times lower against confirmed infection of um, you know for ages 60 plus. So essentially, this is the table um, that you know that I was talking about. This data has been published in NEJM. Um, and which essentially tells us that 11.3 adjusted rate um, ratio and severe illness, it is, you know, again, very high. So that is the, you know, and, and Pfizer as well presented their data uh, on immunogenicity and reactogenicity. So the immunogenicity is, you know, how well the immunity develops and reactogenicity is, what are the side effects that you know they looked at? Um, I do want to um, point out that the N in these, um, the total number of people is very small. So we have to keep always keep that in mind. But this is the data that um, Pfizer actually presented um, to the FDA as well, and which is what what it shows is that it is the immune um, response in both 18 to 55 year olds and 65 to 85 year olds against the wild type and the Delta variant is um, significantly boosted. All right, so this is the reactogenicity, which is, you know, in injection site, um, local um, safety data on local reactogenicity, which is, you know, what was the pain, swelling, um, redness, et cetera. And if you see, um, it is comparable or even maybe look slightly lower than the second dose. And these are generalized or systemic reactogenicity data where you do see that fatigue uh, is comparable to um, to the um, second dose um, and um, fatigue headache and um, all all the symptoms were pretty much comparable so um, so the, there are two things that you know we need to kind of you know we kind of question one is, you know, in older adults and in um, in our nursing home residents, there is poor. There was what we saw is there was even after the second dose, the the immunogenicity was not that high, which could translate to them having higher adverse outcome, which is hospitalizations and death. Um, in addition to symptomatic disease. So, you know, in older adults and in our nursing home residents, what we are looking at is their um, symptomatic infection, but really we are focused on making sure that they are not having serious illness, uh, hospitalizations, or death. Um, in younger population who are healthcare workers, we are definitely more concerned about um, not just the hospitalization and death piece, but also the, the symptomatic and asymptomatic disease. Um, and, you know, that is basically, uh, and the reason for that is, you know, we are concerned that, you know, when our healthcare workers come into the nursing home and provide care to a large number of population, patient population, we want to make sure that if we can drive down the actual symptomatic or asymptomatic infection or positivity rate in them, then we could somehow be able to decrease transmission um, to our long-term care residents. So I'm going to basically change gears and talk about the ethical consideration. There has been a lot of talk about, you know, why um, do we really need to do this? Do we really 
need to um, give boosters when the rest of the world is, you know, does not have enough vaccines. Let me back up for a second, and I just wanted to share with you guys, and I'm sure you guys are very aware, um, the data was presented to the FDA, and the initial vote was um, going to be, um, should the boosters be given, uh, initial vote was, should the boosters be given to all people um, above 16 years of age, um, but based on the data that was presented, both the risks and the benefits, um, the committee felt that it did not warrant a blanket, give a booster dose to every seeing in communities who um, have very high transmission rates and we um, and um, the um, when people who are fully vaccinated, especially younger folks, when they are fully vaccinated, what we are seeing is that they have either asymptomatic disease or they have very disease with very mild symptoms, which is a case of almost mild flu. There is a study that was done in Denmark that studied people who were fully vaccinated and how they reacted to the Delta variant. Essentially, what they saw is your CT values will go down if you're fully vaccinated, your CT values go down for one day one, two, and three, which is um, you know a, a surrogate marker for your viral load, right? And so that means your viral load increases up to day three and then it starts dropping. So your CT values, what they showed is the CT values start decreasing one day one, two, three, and then they start going up on day four. And that is a very important consideration to say, what would happen to a fully vaccinated individual, for example, who was 19, 20, 21 years of age, who was not working in a healthcare environment, and the committee felt that the risk and benefit you know, ratio, and we talk about myocarditis, um, the Israeli data also talked about myocarditis. I was just listening to the ACIP meeting um, they did say that they're, um, you know, of course, the numbers in Pfizer, Pfizer presented an ACIP as well, and they said that the numbers were, although the numbers were small, they did not see any myocarditis in their data. However, Israeli data has reported some myocarditis, and that risk-benefit did not pan out for all comers. However, people above 60 years of age, the data was compelling. So I think the second vote was people above 65 years of age who have had a, you know, Pfizer shots um, and, um, and people who may be at high risk for severe disease and death. And now there's this AP, ACIP hearing that is happening today and tomorrow that will determine, you know, the more specifics of who is going to be eligible. So we can't wait. Now, um, against that backdrop, I do want to talk about ethical considerations. And I think while we talk about these ethical considerations, we're also going to kind of see what are the drivers of the numbers of, you know, of or people in nursing home getting sick. Uh, so let's look at that. I shared earlier that, you know, WHO is not recommending boosters. And, you know, that is, you know, in a huge part due to the health equity issue that we are um, that we are seeing globally. And I think we have to recognize that um, you cannot, it's a pandemic. We cannot have an isolated island of you know, no transmission unless we deal with the global um, situation. So we have to be cognizant of that. However, let's think about, you know, what is happening, for example, in Florida, and I'm from Georgia, so what is happening in Georgia as well. I think this is an important slide and I took it from the ACIP hearing on August 13th. It's a very, very, very important slide. And I just wanted us to, oops, I just wanted us to focus on um, on the number of cases. So look at the state B, and that kind of is more like our, our state, more representative of our state. And 
look at the absolute number of cases you know while there are less people in state b but because of 30 percent vaccination a smaller vaccination rate the virus overwhelms the population the red dots are the people who are unvaccinated the blue ones are the people who are uh, fully vaccinated you have less vaccination less community level of protection more transmission more people are going to test positive who are unvaccinated but vaccinated people the absolute numbers of vaccinated people is going to be higher um, although the percentage of cases who are vaccinated may be lower so it's an important concept that we need to understand that here that's why our community vaccination rate is extremely important to us so you know recognizing this you know we in our nursing homes we decided that we were going to figure out how to protect that resident whether vaccinated or unvaccinated of course we wanted to drive our vaccination rates in our residents very high our residents are about 90 percent protected 90 to 93 percent vaccinated our staff vaccination was was the we recognize that in our community you know our community vaccination rates are in our county right now are 29 percent fully vaccinated and our state vaccination rates are extremely poor so what we recognized is we while to 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 back to protect our residents we have two levels of protection one is your community vaccination rate the second is staff vaccination rate if you are able to drive both of them high you don't have to worry so much about you know um your resident i mean you have to worry about them but you know you know that your numbers are going to be lower you know uh, based on the data that we are seeing and as far as the staff is concerned our staff protection truly is that community rate drives your staff protection your staff is staff rate so you know if that recognition is so 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 important so what we did have in our nursing home for example why we had zero cases is while we recognized that our community level of protection was very low we drove up the staff vaccination rates to get that that wall of protection for our residents however we were not able to do the same for our staff despite so despite 70 percent of our staff being vaccinated they still continue to test positive i want to highlight how we are you know when we talk about health, you know vaccine equity or when we talk about boosters we while we recognize that the global equity is extremely important and this is a global issue and that needs to be dealt with globally i want to highlight the fact that currently in united states there are two different states of united states you two different status i guess situation of united states i didn't want to pick on rhode island and florida for particularly I used Rhode Island as an example because their um, their reporting is great. You know, they, they a lot of their large number of their nursing homes are reporting to um, to the CDC. These are literally out of CDC. I picked Florida because I'm talking to you guys, and you know, you're more aware of your rates. So you know, recognize that this is these are actually good numbers for, for Florida because. You guys have reached that peak. I'm sure that you guys have been inundated with um, with you know um, COVID, and I um, you know I, I can't even I can't even imagine how your summer has been. Um, look at the community vaccination rates between Rhode Island and Florida, and what happens? How that community vaccination translates into community percentage positive rates, which is you know so far thus far have been guiding you know um those rates and um since we are so aware of that i use those less than three percent versus you know 
15% right now as it is starting to go down. Our rates are closer to, you know, our rates are like 17, 18% in my county right now, but we were, you know, our neighboring counties were in the, um, in, in 23, 24 range. Look at this nursing home staff vaccination rate. So when I think about community vaccination rate, if you remember that slide that I shared with you that was presented in ACIP with all those red dots, that is the concept that we have to immediately remember and you know say, okay, this is what is predicted in, in our community. Um, when we look at the nursing home vaccination rates, if you look at the difference in the nursing home staff vaccination rates, the difference is 76% vaccinated versus 48% vaccinated. I would love for us to go back to that slide, you know, that Han slide from CDC um, that, that said there's 66% reduction in cases. So let's see if this pans out, right? Um, 48%, so, you know, slightly. Your nursing home staff positivity rate is 2% versus 9% in Florida, or nine per K resident week, rather, two per K resident week and nine per K resident week. Um, but look at the number of um, staff that has been positive in the last month. It's crazy. Um, nursing home resident vaccination rate, um, I was surprised to see that in Florida, it's actually 73%. And I think that goes with public health messaging, overarching public health messaging that goes from the leaders of the state and community. And then <laughs> if you see the current nursing home resident positive, where I got to say that Rhode Island, the curve is actually going slightly up and Florida's curve is coming pretty exponentially down. Um, and you can still see that despite that, you know, um, the nursing home residents positive in Rhode Island have been like um, one or two, and uh, Florida has been fairly high, but this is just in the last week. Um, nursing home resident deaths, if you look at the deaths, um, the number of deaths in the nursing home residents is pretty, um, pretty um, interesting. So that is where I was, you know, that's where I'm pointing to. I think in Florida and in Georgia, we are seeing a different state of affairs. And, um, and a lot of it is driven by community vaccination and community prevalence. And, um, and so it is, it has become a really interesting challenge, you know, for the, you know, uh, clinicians or for people who are in those states sitting pretty, you know, with very high vaccination rates in the community, in this um, nursing home staff, um, it's really, really hard to fathom where the states with low vaccination rates in the community are struggling. And, um, and, um, and that is, we have to be cognizant of that. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Kevin Henning is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Okay. So I did the total United States versus Florida. And as you can see that, um, that this is Florida on the left, 
um, the rates are 73.3% among residents versus 83%. In um, in the rest of the in in, in aggregate United States actually so it includes Florida numbers as well vaccination among staff I'm sorry this is flipped this is the United States 62% vaccination rate versus 47% vaccination rate again that equation flips for you pretty significantly if you look at the data um, um, on the left is um, confirmed COVID cases among staff um, in the United States. If you look at it, it's 5.62. The rate is 5.62 versus the rate of 8.68 in Florida. And again, as you can see, you guys have started coming down pretty significantly already from the peak. I cannot imagine what the peak looked like, um, you know, for you guys. Um, um, the nursing home resident rates, as you can see, significant difference in nursing home resident rates between United States with, um, you know, 4.25 versus 9.21. And, um, and these are the deaths. And as you can see, pretty significant, uh, pretty significantly high. I mean, out of the whole United States, week ending September 12th, 551, were contributed by Florida. I mean, if we think about it, it's pretty, pretty astounding. There are some other factors that are playing into, that play into this. Vaccination is not the only thing, um, you know, um, I, one of the things, these are the two facilities that I had. And as you can see, facility one and facility two. Facility two actually had less number of residents. So if we actually started doing rates, these are absolute numbers. Um, they are up and down the same road. But if you look at the number of aggregate cases, that is from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, until we got vaccinated. Because after vaccination, we had one resident positive between the two facilities and that was an admission from the hospital. If you look at it, um, there is a significant difference between the numbers. So PPE use, masking actually makes a difference. You know, these, these are the things that we used um, before we had the vaccine. PPE use makes a difference cohorting appropriately staff, residents, and equipment, and staffing shortages. The worst cases, um, increase in cases in facility two happened in the setting of significant staffing shortages. And my point here is that, the, that staffing matters. So when, even if our staff is going out with being positive and we are not seeing significant staff deaths um, in fully vaccinated staff. Um, it still it still leads to staffing shortages, which in turn leads to increase in number of cases. Could lead to increase in number of cases. So that's that's what my point is. So keeping that in mind, AMDA actually um, sent a letter of request to ACIP to meet as soon as possible with the data that they had to make a determination and give us guidance on um, giving the booster dose to our residents uh, in the long-term care facilities and also have consideration for staff vaccination. So that happened as soon as we got the data from the Canada study that we had quoted in the letter. This is from the ACIP hearing today. Actually, Dr. Slayton might be talking while I'm talking because her slot was right now. So um, thankfully, um, the, the slides were shared uh, about 15 minutes prior to our meeting right now. And what she is going to present is also the fact that you know this is the total um, symptomatic 
and asymptomatic COVID-19 infections among the residents. And if you look at this slide carefully, on the left is um, your importation rate. Importation rate is correlated with your community, you know, percentage positive or your community incident rates that CDC is now reporting. So this is an area of, let's say this is Rhode Island. And if you see, um, you know, the mean number of infected residents um, after two months. So the, the, the higher, the bigger the red, that's the higher number of symptomatic and asymptomatic residents, right? Um, and um, here, is, here is basically what it is showing is it's, you may give boosters, this is after the boosters. You may give boosters and after the booster, the, this is the, on the left is the no booster, on the left is the no booster, on the right is booster, this is modeling data. After 90% people have been, um, uh, of residents have been vaccinated. And this is when 90% of the residents have been vaccinated. But look at the staff vaccination coverage. And so what it is showing is, if your staff vaccination coverage remains low, even when you provide the booster, you are only going to be able to prevent the disease in your residence if your community prevalence is high. Like, let's say this is Georgia or Florida, and let's say this is Rhode Island. Rhode Island, like, literally, we are still not able to reach here despite boosting all of our residents in low staff vaccination coverage. So my point, my moral of the story from this is, this slide, is that community prevalence matters and staff vaccination coverage matters. Um, now, what has, so this is her final slide, which says maximizing COVID-19 vaccination among staff remains a critical tool for preventing cases in nursing homes. Booster for nursing home residents can help reduce cases Magnitude of effect depends on the effectiveness and staff vaccine coverage. Even with highly effective boosters, cases in nursing homes will persist when community transmission is high. So, um, so we will see um, between today and tomorrow how um, the ACIP um, uh, committee is going to make determination on um, on essentially um, staff vaccination, staff booster vaccination. I believe, I firmly believe that, you know, after the FDA um, approval of the EUA for a booster for high-risk patients, I um, believe that we might be able to get a booster dose uh, for a residence I am very interested in seeing how the committee determines resident, uh, sorry, staff vaccination um, and which side does it come to. Um, I would love to go back to, um, so I would love to go back to this slide of um, this slide that I keep thinking about. We can boost their immunity and they would be having a better, a better hospitalization and death advantage. But in a community with poor um, vaccination rates, my question is, should we boost the immunity of the currently vaccinated staff so that they have the benefit of transmission? Um, and that is, that is uh, going to be an interesting question to answer. So that's where we stand on the boosters and the discussion on boosters. So I think we may know something totally different by tomorrow afternoon. That being said, I wanted to say, um, I wanted to go to how do we prepare? So knowing what we know now, how do we prepare for boosters in long-term care? Our current unanswered questions which, you know, which um, I'm sure will be discussed is, does the data of Pfizer vaccine apply to Moderna? 
Um, and what we have seen in the past slides is Pfizer vaccine um, had lower, had more waning of immunity seen for symptomatic disease, but the death and um, hospitalization advantage was maintained. That is as opposed to Moderna, where um, the symptomatic disease um, advantage is pretty well preserved compared to Pfizer. And the reason for that could be two. One is dosing interval, and that could point to, if you remember, the data from Canada and from UK was slightly different with Pfizer showing a better preservation of immunity against symptomatic disease. So um, does the, we know that the data of Pfizer, the, the contributive factor people think is, one is the dose of mRNA used in Pfizer is slightly smaller dose than Moderna and the dosing interval as we talked about. So we know that the data is different. My question is, how is it going to pan out operationally? Are they going to say only boost Pfizer or boost all vaccines all across the board? So that's going to be an interesting question to answer for ACIP. Um, and then the other question is, do we give the same vaccine or a different vaccine is ac acceptable? So there are two things about heterologous um, vaccine. Um, Lancet has published uh, studies on heterologous vaccine administration on both reactogenicity and immunogenicity, but that they used obviously their AstraZeneca vaccine and what they had shown is if there is a heterologous vaccine, for example, you used AstraZeneca first and then gave the Pfizer, the reactogenicity is slightly higher with increase in Tylenol use and increase in reporting of body aches, generalized symptoms, and localized symptoms as well. Um, what about the immunogenicity data? So if they... But, Compared to the two doses of AstraZeneca, the two doses of Pfizer were better. However, the, the AstraZeneca plus Pfizer uh, was slight bit better than both of them is what they have published. Now those, again, small studies, there's a large trial that, um, uh, that is being conducted by NIAD um, which compares all the vaccines that are available to us right now um, and they are looking at the heterologous um, administration of those vaccines. So that data should come out um, and I'm eagerly awaiting that data as well. And I'm sure that we um, know that the, um, the uh, Johnson Johnson vaccine, um, uh, just uh, Johnson Johnson just came out with their vaccine data on 56 days and six months and basically they show that there is benefit in giving two doses um, and doses given at six months have a higher benefit. Um, so we'll, that'll be uh, interesting uh, data to look at as well. So that is you know, what we have on the road, you know, what we have to anticipate as we go forward. Okay, this is an important um, topic um, that I just wanted to highlight that um, um, ACIP and CDC basically are suggesting that co-administration of influenza vaccine and COVID vaccine can be done. Um, what we have done is we have decided to co-administer the vaccine, the boosters, and the, uh, and the influenza vaccine for the residents. As we had seen very, very limited side effects or um, reactogenicity, when we saw, when we, um, um, when we gave the second dose and the first dose of um, our Moderna vaccines. Um, so we will, we feel comfortable. We are asking the families, uh, but we feel comfortable doing co-administration. Remember, if you are going to use high dose uh, a flu vaccine or more potent flu vaccines, they are recommending different arms, different limbs. Um, um, to be used because, um, because of the, you know, the side effects. In the staff though, we are giving the staff the choice of either taking the flu vaccine uh, and COVID vaccine together or doing it 
at different intervals depending on how the staff feels um, because it you know um, any adverse reaction in the staff or the perceived reaction in the staff um, does something to the morale of the rest of the staff and we are we are in an area of you know 29% vaccination and I laughingly often say that misinformation quotient should be a real thing and we have a very high misinformation quotient in our in our community so we are going to actually break it down for um, staff if they don't feel confident okay vaccine logistics your team is going to be consultant pharmacist your DON nursing leadership medical director and here are the things that I had, um, you know, we, we, had, we didn't have the, uh, the pharmacy program. We decided to in-house our vaccine efforts to begin with. And these are the lessons that I had learned. So I have just done check boxes. There is a very good resource that is available um, on the AMDA website as well. And in the bottom, I have actually basically um, given the clinical consideration managing anaphylaxis. That is a very, very important piece of information to educate your staff on observation and assessment of anaphylaxis because it's not going to be always a huge rash and a swollen tongue. It could be nausea. It could be I feel um, dizzy and people passing out, etc. Make sure that you have your e-kit available for vaccine. That is also on the website um, uh, below. And then um, staffing logistics. We used a lot of um, light duty staff to do observation and we did, um, we did hallway by hallway. Um, but it is a very, um, if you um, prepare well, it's going to be a fast process. So that is it for me. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that we can see what's going on. Thank you, Swati. Thank you. I think um, I'm trying to see if we had any more questions. Some of the questions were more comments through the chat, but if anyone has any questions, we do ask you to take yourself off of mute and um, please ask. I'm going to start with one for you, Swati. Um, looking at that, that ACIP slide, the first one that you shared, um, you know, here in Florida, we have a staff vaccine hesitancy or confidence initiative that we've been promoting. From that slide, it seems like we need to double down on efforts to really get the staff vaccinated. And as you said, it's Florida. Um, we are we are a special case like Georgia within the country. <laughs> what do you what have you seen that is working to get the staff um, to agree to that shot of the arm? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm, thank you, thank you for asking. I mean, I if I can just shamelessly brag, because you know we have been working so hard on this. Um, our vaccine rates in the community are 30%. Our staff rates without any mandates or even, um, even any kind of incentives had already climbed to like 70, 70%. So that is a four, that's a 40 point differential, you know, in a community that our staff is living. Um, what, was the, what was the difference? Uh, one thing that I can say, Diane, leadership matters you know and you and i are suffering from the fact that leadership matters you know um on vaccines on masks so i'm just gonna have to come out and say it i think we need to stop being afraid and just you know be very uh, be vaccine forward so one of the things i think that we achieved very early on is that leadership of the facility are there is not a single person walking in the facility that doesn't know that if they talk to our administrator, if they talk to our DON, if they talk to our you know, nursing leadership, if they talk to me, if they talk to any of the clinicians, that conversation about vaccine and the benefit of vaccine and the studies of vaccine is not going to come up. So in, in essence, we are very vaccine forward leadership and we made that determination. And the reason for that is one. Um, you know, I, I'm a huge gardener. I, um, one thing that I know that the reason that the way that you can decrease the weeds in your garden is grow healthy plants. Your brain is a very, very, um, you know, valuable real estate and misinformation ha is leaps and bounds ahead of us. 
So there is, there has to be a constant and continuous push to replace and elbow out that misinformation by real data from the clinical leaders in the facility, from the administrators in the facility, from the DONs in the facility, um, from the from create uh, create your um, create your tribe, create your vaccine forward tribe. We have CNAs, we have um, food service workers, we have you know, we created this tribe of people who um, constantly talk about, but this is what the data shows. And we share that with all departments, town halls, like incessant town halls, bringing them in. Tough, tough town halls, because we, we had EBS and food services who would not come to our town halls. So then we went and reached out to their VP and said, please, can you get us in front of them? Very, very tough meeting, very contentious meeting. Here's the thing. We sat down with people who were unvaccinated. Out of those people who were unvaccinated then, um, over 70% um, over of those people are vaccinated despite having a contentious meeting. So don't think that everyone is going to agree with you, but I think that giving constant information matters um, to tour staff as well. Now, I know we are, we're running short on time, but just I heard you mention on a call um, on another talk about people who may be jumping the, the line and, and trying to look for a booster shot. And I'm not going to tell you how many people I know who have done that. <laughs> no one has to disclose that. But um, we have states like um, Leslie Ebers on, and we have states like Colorado where they're already giving boosters to healthcare workers. And, and I, I'm not sure if they're doing it for residents, but what do we do? You know, we don't know what, what the FDA, we don't know what the CDC is gonna recommend and what the FDA is going to, to, um, to decide. You know, yes, it is the Wild West out in Colorado, but we're, this is the Caribbean, you know, we're, we're dipping into the Caribbean in Florida. So, you know, what do you, what do you recommend? So I think after, uh, I can tell you that I started out with my, um, I have always, um, I, I, I wanted to get a booster so bad. And full disclosure, I've not gotten a booster yet. Um, would, I, uh, would I love to get a booster? Yes. I, I hope that ACIP comes out on the side of giving healthcare workers a booster. Uh, would I, after listening to the FDA um, hearing, uh, the VRPAC, would I give it to my children? I was very, you know, so I have 17 year old and a 23 year old. The 23 year old lives in Massachusetts. Um, you know, the 17 year old is uh, fully vaccinated. They have masking, mandatory masking in their school. Um, I am gonna have to do a risk benefit. And I don't think that after listening to the WARPAC um, committee meeting, um, I'm, I'm going to recommend that my kids take the booster because uh, they, you know, they're younger, they're doing the other, the other things. Their school is actually using PPE, et cetera. Yeah. So I would not recommend them getting the boosters. And I think I, I come down on that side too, because I feel like when you're at higher risk because you're in a facility, you're in the hospital setting, you're seeing patients, wherever you're seeing them, it puts you at a higher risk. And so everyone in, in our facilities would probably be at a higher risk and we should take different considerations. Um, but those who are young and making great <laughs> immune reactions, you know, maybe we should think differently. My biggest concern is the information and the, the, the data that we, we still need to really receive and understand about the long hauler symptoms. Because if we're getting such dramatic outcomes with those who are in their 40s and 50s, should that age requirement be dropped? That, that has been, been the thing that's sort of like, keeping me awake, <laughs> making me read at three o'clock at a.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think we really, I think it all will have to boil down to what is, where are you living? You know, where are you living? What is your risk of acquiring the disease? And, you know, ending up that long hauler symptoms, right? I mean, um, I know that the data in um, Israel is over 60 years of age. If a 60 year old is gonna come to me and say, you know, I want a booster, I'm not gonna say no. <laughs> you know, there's compelling data. 
Um, so, um, so um, you know, of course, after the ACIP hearing, mm -hmm. I would never recommend anybody do anything that is outside of the bounds of, you know, what is, what should be, um, you know, we, what our ACIP and our organizations that we trust say. Um, but, um, but yes, I mean, uh, definitely for a younger generation who is especially living in Massachusetts, I'm not going to recommend a booster. I think that's overkill. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time today. This was wonderful. This will be, this recording will be available and um, we'll make the slides available too. So thank you everyone. Have a great day. Thank you so much for having Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.